The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we're going to end our three-part post-FOCAC series today in talking about the Chinese perspective. Now, if you recall, over the past two weeks, we've had Luke Pady on, who gave us a more international view. Uh, last week, we had a really lively discussion with uh, Kenyan economist Nsetse Ware on the Kenyan view of what came out of FOCAC. And today we're going to go to China. And what's interesting about all three of the different perspectives over the past three weeks, the reactions that have emerged from FOCAC, reactions to the $60 billion financial assistance package has been that it's been, for the most part, universally negative. Aside from the official state media coming out of certain African governments and the official state media coming out of China and elites on both sides, they're happy. But nobody else seems happy with what's come out of FOCAC. And I find that to be very, very interesting in part because in previous FOCACs and in previous years when China was announcing that it had a $20 billion and then a $60 billion financial assistance package, that was always greeted with uh, jubilation. Like, oh my gosh, look at what China's doing to help develop Africa. This time, not at all. And, you, you know, what's also spread, and this is where I'd like to get your feedback, is this fear in Africa, legitimate, I might add, that the $60 billion of money that is coming down the pike for the next three years is just going to make Africa's indebtedness situation far more severe and far more chronic. And over the past two weeks, we've seen now a spread of these rumors, and they do seem to be rumors. It started in Zambia, where there was a rumor that... China was going to take over the state-run electric company because Zambia was going to default on its debt to China. Then this week, it moved to Ghana, where the rumors spread that China was going to take over the country's uh, DTT spectrum, so that's digital broadcasting spectrum. That was going to be handed over to Star Times. That, too, was rebutted and refuted by the Ministry of Commerce. But all of this is anchored in this fear that the debt levels in Africa are now unsustainably high, in part because of the loan activity coming from China and all this money coming out of FOCAC. So nervousness, anxiety, and I got to be honest with you, FOCAC, Cobus, uh, this, I called you FOCAC. I got to be honest with you. <laughs> That's on my mind. I was, um, I was not expecting this level of anxiety. Uh, I was expecting more excitement in some sense in terms of the ability to continue to build the infrastructure. Uh, but at the same time, I do understand where people are coming from in terms of this. And it really it does boil down to, in one sense, that the Chinese are not explaining themselves and what their agenda is if, in fact, they are as benevolent as they say they are, which we still, for the, for the most part, don't really know. 
Yeah, I mean that that I think is big is definitely one big problem. I think that there's a, a breakdown in communication um, about what uh, what this financing will mean, how it breaks down, what it's going to be used for, and that comes from the Chinese government. But it's also it's not helping being helped by African governments, who I think should also be better at explaining the kind of deals that they made to their populations. And I think that is the bigger problem that there's also a breakdown in trust between African populations and African leaders. So African leader can make a deal and then announce the deal with great jubilation and then not be believed you know because there is this, this ingrained idea that leaders are in it only for themselves and that they that they will make some kind of deal and then leave Africa with with bad debt afterwards so I think it's it's a you know it, it's a testament of, of where we are worldwide in terms of a kind of a lack of trust and general economic anxiety but also I think it points to some some problems within African politics as well. It's interesting, Kobus, that you bring up that point, because in the Zambian case, uh, critics are saying that's exactly what the problem is, that President Edgar Lungo is not uh, transparent enough in the country's debts. Now, right now, uh, Zambian's public debt stands at about $10.6 billion. uh, But apparently there are suspicions that, in fact, it's grown in recent months and the government is actually hiding the true amount. And people are referring to what happened in Mozambique back in 2016 when they were forced to admit that they, in fact, had $2 billion of secret debt. So this lack of transparency on the African side is only made worse by some of the lack of transparency on the Chinese side. And again, as you pointed out, in these days that we live in where people do not trust establishment, governments, news, rumors, and social media kind of make for a very, very toxic environment. Now, what's so very interesting about this is that the critics in Africa of the FOCAC loans may be surprised to learn that they will find a lot of allies in their criticism in China. Because at the end of the day, here in China, the loans are not also very popular either. In fact, during FOCAC, uh, the government had to start controlling some of the discussion on social media as it's wont to do when the topics veer from the official line. And people here were not were not pleased at all. There's this sense now that China is not in a position to be loaning out tens of billions of dollars or even granting aid. And one of the things that's so interesting is that the Chinese government does not actually explain to its own people what it's doing very well. So it creates a lot of anxiety here. And there's this sense in this country that there are at least 100 million people who are in dire chronic poverty. And this has been a priority for Xi Jinping to address. Um, And it is something that is very, very well known. Most Chinese people, even well-to-do Chinese people, still do not think of their country as a developed country, even though when you come to the East Coast in cities like Shanghai, where I'm at, uh, it's more advanced than many Southern European countries. But for the most part, people still think of China as a developing country. So the idea that China is spending tens of billions of dollars in places like Africa does not go down well with a large segment of the population. So this is why we wanted to get a perspective from Beijing and from China to better understand at least some of the thinking. This is a country that is far too large to have any one person consolidate the thinking, just like Africa is too large to have any one person represent a billion people. But we want to get a snapshot of at least what one perspective is. And so we're thrilled to have back on the program Kai Xue, who, for those of you who've listened to our program over the years, he's been a guest a couple of times on the show. Kai Xue is an attorney based in Beijing. He's written on China's outbound investments in places like Africa and India and many other parts of the world. He's had columns published in The Guardian, on The Diplomat, and most recently on CGTN, China's state-run TV news broadcaster. So Kai Xue, very good evening to you. Thank you so much for staying up late to join us. 
Uh, good evening, guys. Thank you for having me on again. It's wonderful to have you on, and it's it's going to be very interesting to get your take on this because I think it's fair to say that over the years, you are a critic of China's engagement in Africa on financial terms. You and I have had a number of discussions on LinkedIn about this where you don't think that China should be spending the money that it's spending in Africa in part because it doesn't get the return on investment that it does in other parts of the world. And so I'd like to get your take in terms of how you understand the moment that we're in, the reaction that has come down both in China and in other parts of the world to the FOCAC announcement of $60 billion and the rest of China's plan for Africa. Well, I, I guess um, the, the first question to approach all of this is to try to digest what has happened in the last FOCAC and what the new cycle will mean in terms of the direction of engagement compared to previous cycles. And uh, you've, you've already started with that question before on another show of whether uh, China-Africa has peaked. And uh, to give my take on that, um, it, it's a multifaceted answer. And I think there are, there are going to be some points that um, uh, I, I can make that certainly show that China-Africa has peaked. And then I can even contradict myself by making other points. And... Um, well, if we were just to look at the tangible commitments that have been made for this cycle, uh, the headline number is $60 billion in commitments. But uh, when I analyze that, when I do my own analysis of it, uh, I prefer to look at um, you know, act actual commitments that will be used in this cycle. So I just look at the aid and lending that I believe will be used in the next three years compared to the aid and lending in the last three years. And uh, by my estimate, in the last three years, it was about $45 billion in aid and lending. And uh, the commitments made this time are $50 billion. So it's a comparable number and it's uh, modestly increased. So it's kept up with inflation. So this is the most tangible number. And um, so we, we, we then now see in this cycle compared to the last, it's been stable, which uh, given, you know, the very high expectations that have been formed around China, Africa, in that at every single cycle, this number just keeps on soaring to now hear that it's stabilized could be from one perspective in itself showing that um, that an actual peak has arrived, has been arrived at. Uh, so, so that that that's the um, that's the most central, tangible factor to look at. And uh, I, there are there are other ways to, to examine it, which is that outside of economic engagement, there's now new fronts like uh, with the Djibouti military base. That's that's another facet of the relationship that didn't exist before. Um, and there's there's also from the African perspective, you you, you mentioned there's dissatisfaction. On the African side, but um, I, I, I see it a bit differently. Uh, I, I remember in the last FOCAC in 2015, and uh, in in the lead up to that, even in the year before, you know, there there were there was quite a bit of um, um, some some backlash I had heard, uh, and also by the Western media and also by African intellectuals. Um, you, you might remember back in 2014, Howard French wrote a New York Times op-ed piece where he said that uh, there are going to be now, from now on, new hard questions asked about the relationship. So I, I believe there already was the same variety of criticism that you hear now. It was already being asked even four years ago. 
And I'm not sure, you know, that level of criticism has intensified even, despite the fact that in the Western media and in the line that's been promoted by Washington of the debt trap has just grown so much louder. The chatter is just so much more voluminous now. But I'm not sure, you know, African leaders or intellectuals have been affected by this. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm just trying to assess the African perspective now of China-Africa, and I'm not sure the mood has soured actually more than it has before. And so, when you take this all together, I, I would just come to the conclusion that um, the level of economic engagement is still fairly robust, and but it's just not growing. And uh, one critical factor that. You know, I, I I haven't seen, and that I speculated at the start of the decade when I wrote a, a, an opinion column called, um, you know, has China is is China Africa bound to peak? I had predicted that maybe uh, there would be some turbulence in the African perspective towards engagement of China, and if if that mood changes, that that would be really when things peak because with, without that uh, optimism. Uh, you know, that the, it would feel like the relationship has crashed into a wall. But um, because the mood is still upbeat, I believe, and there's still a, a large amount of transactions that are going to happen, uh, I'll, I'll give a more nuanced answer to that, returning to that question of whether China-Africa has peaked to just say uh, things are now still robust, but they're just not growing. In terms of the the reaction to the the loan back or the the financing package announced this time with FOCAC in China, um, did you do you feel that that there was um, the we we saw more or maybe you know the the West um, you know go, picked up a few more protests or more criticism about about this package than than last time, um, and of course you know it, it's it's very difficult to see, to to gauge exactly you know what's going on within. China from the outside, um, but do, do you have the feeling that the general Chinese population are they do that are they a bit more dismayed about the about the size of the financing package this time because the because economic conditions are generally more hazardous um, or do, do don't you really see that kind of change? I you know I think when when it comes to uh, foreign aid, and of course, most most of the engagement, economic engagement, is not aid, but is perceived as such. When whenever the subject of foreign aid comes up, um, and you you bring bring it up with um, uh, the general of the general people and their uh, and their opinions, it it is going to be quite negative, and so I I don't sense a sharp change in that, and I I, I generally think that. Uh, among maybe more informed opinion, there there's still the general perception that this is part of a uh, economic engagement rather than purely aid, and so there there is some benefit in return. So uh, from I, I I don't sense in in this constituency uh, any radical change. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. 
I'll go ahead and say that I think the reaction that I see here in China to foreign aid, be it in Africa or other parts of the world, is almost identical to what I hear back home in the United States and certainly in Europe, where populism now is driving the message that says, we have people at home who need help, we shouldn't be spending money abroad. The other thing is that both Americans and Chinese think that they're spending much more than they actually are. Americans spend about one one-thousandth of their budget on foreign aid. Uh, the Chinese don't always understand that of the $60 billion that you pointed out, a lot of it is in the form of loans. So they're not actually giving away $60 billion. They're making money. It's a profit engine for a lot of state banks and state-owned enterprises and construction companies. Um, so there's very, very poor levels of awareness here in China about the details of this, even at the mass level. And it's unfortunate that the government actually doesn't do more to educate people about the different types of engagement that it has around the world, because I think it would actually get more uh, popular support if they did. If they went to that extra effort to kind of say, we're not just giving all this money away, but we're actually – uh, not necessarily profiting from it, which they are, but at the same time using the, you know, China's hefty reserves in other ways rather than just buying treasury bills uh, in the United States, which is what they've done for the past 20, 25 years as a way to kind of hide away a lot of their, their, their national reserves and their savings from the, the trade surpluses that they've built up. Uh, Kaishu, I want to get your take on one, on one point that, that may have changed now in the past three or four weeks. When FOCAC ended in early September... Uh, the trade dispute, trade war, trade skirmish, however you want to call it with the United States, had not intensified to where it is today. Uh, now we're on the precipice of real, you know, we're going into no man's land right now where we don't know how this is going to end. There are tariffs now on almost everything coming out of China into the United States and the Chinese are reciprocating. And everybody's now considering how do we move up to DEFCON 2 and finding other ways that are non-trade related, related to start punishing others. I guess in some ways this now forces Xi Jinping to start looking at other ways to make up for the loss in the relationship that he's having with the United States and potentially looking to places like Africa and South Asia and other parts of the developing world to make up for the $500 billion in trade. Does this change the equation in your view of what Africa means to Xi Jinping and to the Chinese government, given the fact that they are now encountering so many headwinds with the United States? Well, it you know, the, um, the engagement of Africa, uh, one of the principal interests behind it, and maybe the least understood, is that it, it is geopolitical in nature. There is, there is a strategic interest in engagement of Africa. And, and whenever there's a um, difficulty, tumult with the United States, then, uh, you know, it becomes clearer that uh, needing strategic allies across the world is, is more important. Uh, in, in, in terms of uh, using African markets to offset uh, the, the loss of uh, loss of exports to U.S., that that's that's hard. It's, it's hard to see because uh, Africa accounts for about four percent of exports. And um, and it's, it's hard to imagine that uh, Africa could purchase more. Um, so it, it, I, I, it's hard for me to see how, how no, there's just a to be clear, I, I wasn't suggesting that Africa would make up for the United States. What I was suggesting was the fact that China now is going to have to turn to its other trading partners, including Africa, in order to make up for what it's going to lose with the United States. So in that case, Africa may not have been as important, but that 4% now is actually much more important than it was a month ago. 
Well, I think, you know, this this might be not the it's not the angle under consideration when it comes to geopolitical conflict um, making up for sales. Perhaps, um, I mean, just to identify what exactly is the interest here, if um, let's say hostilities escalate and it's not a trade war, but it's actually becomes something like a sanctions war. You know, uh, you, you already see comprehensive sanctions against Iran uh, with um, legislation that's going through the U.S. Congress now. You might see comprehensive sanctions against Russia. So it, it is part of the playbook that in, escal- you know, with deteriorating relations, it, you know, it would get to uh, sanctions even. And if U.S. were to impose sanctions against China that were comprehensive, it would mean that uh, oil or, or minerals couldn't be shipped from U.S.-owned companies or uh, allies of the U.S. And uh, if, if there were such a crisis, then, uh, you know, you can really realize how important it is to have uh, allies or neutral players all across the world that would continue shipping. In that sense, you know, ge- geopolitics is very important to the engagement Kasia, I wonder if we could go back to uh, to an earlier comment that that uh, Eric actually mentioned about some some of your um, some of your writing, where you pointed out that uh, Chinese investments um, in Africa generally don't have the kind of return on investment that 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 would be you know, would encourage them or, you know, would we, that, that one would want to see. Um, I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit. And is, is that true for investments across the board? Or are you particularly talking about infrastructure investment? So if we were to look at each uh, segment of engagement, so there's, there's aid, there's lending, there's investment, and then there's trade. So if, if we were just to talk about the largest component of all, which is lending and almost all of that goes to infrastructure lending uh, by return on investment I mean the the possibility that there will be a higher rate of default and um, uh, you know I don't have the numbers so I, I'm not sure that Africa compared to the rest of the developing world where loans are advanced for infrastructure will have higher rates of default but it is you know, Africa will be on the risky side because the long-term economic prospects are based on on the world price of minerals and oil, and those haven't returned into firm into good shape. And if we look at investments, specifically state-backed investments, so what I mean are when you hear of the commitments to investment in Africa, especially in the 2015 FOCAC, where for instance, $5 billion was increased. The, um, the China-Africa Development Fund was increased by $5 billion. For that kind of investment, I, I don't have uh, any general verdict on whether it's better or worse than other state-backed investment. And in fact, it might actually be better than other parts of the world uh, because um, you know, Af- Africa has, has not um, had the developed, doesn't have the developed market and so there might not be as many competitors. So, for instance, if a um, the that the, the CAD fund, which is you know wants to invest alongside and in, say an airline in Africa, you know there there might not be as many competitors, and so it would be quite profitable. I mean, it's not simply just the uh, the return on investment that that 
alone can't be used to assess whether this is a good uh, allocation of resources. Something else that also needs to be looked at is that um, because there are limited resources, are there higher priority places where these resources should be committed to? And I, I tend to think that the highest priority should be among the, the, the 14 states that, that border China and also where, you know, in the near, near broad where, you know, political conflict, can, I mean, where geopolitical conflict can occur and where allies will be very valuable. And um, just thinking in, also in terms of the priority other places might have, I, I take that factor together with also the return on investment to come to my conclusion that uh, right now the current level of spending on Africa, you know, it doesn't reflect uh, the clearest thinking in my mind. Let's close out our discussion right now with a perspective from Beijing and, and we're because we don't get many points of view from China. It's, it's actually not that easy these days. And so you're there, you're watching the global scene. This is, these are very strange times that we're in right now. You know, both with the Americans, the Chinese, with global politics, the African reactions, the current situation with debt and the legitimate concerns about debt in Africa. So when you're looking out, what do you think that people need to know about China at this moment that they may not understand that you have an insight from being in Beijing and working, you know, inside the system there? What, what do you think people are misreading and need to know most about where we are today in China? Overall, probably something that's very different from my perspective from what um, what is in the mainstream Western media is my own level of optimism about the development of the economy and especially over the long term. So uh, although, you know, there's much talk about a slowdown or maybe even a banking implosion that's across the corner, just right around the corner, you know, I don't deny that an event like that wouldn't be a possibility. But uh, I, my perspective and my base assumption is that over the next 15 to 20 years, what is going to happen is a conversion from the transformation right now from a middle income country to an entry level first world country. And so there's going to be very sweeping changes on the world stage because of that transformation. You know, the, maybe the economy will grow by, by six times in, in uh, 20 plus years. Um, so uh, I, 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 in those most general terms of how to just contrast me with my own opinions with um, mainstream Western columnists is just a, a long-term super optimism. Super optimism. Kobus, we do not end our shows very often on such an optimistic <laughs> note. And I am, I honestly did not expect that today was going to be the day of all days and topics that we were going to end on an optimistic note. But Kaishue, you have done it. So thank you so much for, for making me feel better about the world. Uh, you know, I, I, odd that that's how it came from. But uh, guys, if you want to follow uh, Kaishue, he is very, very active on LinkedIn, uh, getting into tussles with none other than Ian Bremmer on a regular basis. I think Ian Bremmer must be number one on your hit list. Uh, but <laughs> if you follow Ian Bremmer's you know, LinkedIn page, you'll see Kai Shue piping in quite regularly. You can also find his latest article that he just latest column that he wrote. It's on CGTN, which again is the state-run broadcaster in China. Mutual benefit, 
Chinese construction contractors and African farmers. Uh, Kai Xue is is one of the the sharpest young voices in China on foreign affairs and China's international relations, particularly with the global south. And so I highly encourage you to follow what he's reading and writing these days. Kai Xue, once again, thank you so much for staying up late to join us. We really appreciate it. And we're looking forward to speaking with you again very soon. I always enjoy our discussions. Cobus, the biggest takeaway for me from what Kai Xue said, other than the fact that he's super optimistic, which actually, let me let me go on that point very quickly. And I think this is very, very revealing. He said he was super optimistic about the economy in the next 15 to 20 years. And that reveals, I think, some of the differences in how people here in China think and the rest of the world, where they're thinking in terms of decades, Whereas we Americans think in terms of quarters, oftentimes in Africa, it's very immediate what's here today. And and long-term thinking is difficult for both Africans, Americans, and to some extent, even Europeans. So to hear him say 15 to 20 years, uh, that was that was insightful. The biggest takeaway for me, though, other than that, was how he's reframing the relationship away from an economic relationship, which so many people focus on the trade relationship and the investment relationship. And we started to hear this in a lot of our conversations that we're having with various experts, that the political, military, and geopolitical relationship now between China and Africa is going to be far more prominent for the folks in Beijing than the economics of trade, simply because at the end of the day, Africa's trade with China is a rounding error in terms of China's global trading portfolio. Yes, um, of course. You know, trade with Africa has a lot of a lot of growth potential. Um, you know, because it, it really is the you know it's about a billion people in total, and and it is a, a largely untapped market. But at the same time, like there's a lot of work that needs to be done before that market can be effectively tapped. Um, and but yeah, you know, in relation to the political relationship, I, I think it's really important that that shift is very important. And I think we need to the two of us, and then also you know the China Africa world in. in more generally, um, need to do a, a bit more kind of hard-nosed discussion about what that political relationship actually constitutes. Because frequently when you when you start talking about the, about what, what China is getting in terms of political support, people immediately jump to UN votes, you know? And I mean, that, that is a, that is a, a sizable issue. Um, but I, I think it would be interesting to, to start unpacking what the China-Africa political relationship looks like in the context of the wider global South and what politically China China is getting from Africa that it's not getting from, say, South America, um, and then also what it's not what it's getting from Africa politically, but it, but what it's not getting from its its direct neighbors like the ASEAN bloc or Central Asia, um, you know. So, so it'll be interesting to to kind of to make those distinctions and to see what is specific to to the China Africa relationship politically. Now, let me just confuse things a little bit, because the lines between economics, investment, and politics oftentimes merge, particularly with the Chinese. But let's talk about 5G. So this idea of what do they get? There is a global battle now between the United States and China to establish the next standard for mobile communications, otherwise known as 5G. We're at 4G right now. In many countries, they're still at 3G. But the next generation of mobile communications will be about 5G, massive amounts of bandwidth. This will enable the Internet of Things. This is where devices can talk to each other uh, much faster. The data processing of the cell towers will be incredibly fast so it can do things uh, that we never were able to do. 
and the war between the United States and China over standards. That is the same thing that we had in other periods of hegemony. So whether it's the plugs, the electric plugs that go into the war, into your, you know, the British standard or the American standard, whether it is the sa- the, the type of sails that the, the British fleet used during their empire, whether it was the currency, the language, standards are a battlefield. And because whoever can establish the standard for 5G will win the right for hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. So most recently, the the United States, Australia, and India have banned companies like Huawei now from engaging their 5G standards in their markets out of security concerns. So I can see, for example, Africa being one of the areas where Chinese telcos, ZTE, Huawei, will be able to make inroads. And that will have both economic benefits for China, but also geopolitical benefits as well, as it will try to control the next generation of technology standards that the rest of the world will have to then abide by. So that's one of those areas that makes it very, very confusing to understand where the geopolitics begin and the economics end. Yeah, that's that's a fantastic point. And we, we definitely need to focus on that issue specifically and, and, and unpack it in more detail. And, and of course, with it comes the other issue of the minerals that, that underlie all of these technologies and the fact that Africa has so many of them in you know in large deposits compared to the rest of the world. So that's and, and it's another field where politics and, and, and trade overlap. Ah, and it's interesting you bring that up because in the context of the U.S.-China trade dispute, uh, one area that I think is going to come down to is rare earths, which China controls about 80 to 85 percent of the world's rare earths, but also now the minerals like tantalum and coltan that go into electric cars. And China has been buying up mines for decades now, or at least a decade, in the Democratic Republic of Congo and is now probably the major player in those minerals. And will it use its market power now to choke off the United States from those minerals and its EV industry? That's going to be very, very interesting to watch, that it has these leverage in these strategic minerals. If the trade dispute intensifies, will it start to leverage those positions? Those are topics that we're going to try and find people in the coming weeks and months to look at to see what are the implications of the U.S.-China trade dispute on Africa, because at the end of the day, Africa might have a very very important role to play in that. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Uh, We'll be back again next week with another episode. Every week, Kobus and I are here. In the meantime, we'd like to invite you to sign up for our newsletter. Just go to our webpage at ChinaAfricaProject.com. It's a little bit messy right now. We're fixing the pictures, but there's an easy way to sign up for our newsletter. It comes out every Monday, and it's got a curated list of the top five or six stories. And also, for those of you who are interested, we have a new about page. And now, normally, that's not something that people announce and that get very excited about. But <laughs> Kobus and I had a little bit of a squabble on Twitter uh, recently, and people were asking us not about between our funding. The two of us, between us not and between the people. two of us, with other people <laughs> who were, you know, asking about our funding. These are legitimate questions. We don't mind. We have absolutely nothing to hide. And so we decided after this little squabble on Twitter, uh, where apparently it wasn't clear who we are, and it's been clear for the past eight years since we've been doing this show, but things change. And so uh, we've updated our about page with uh, who we are, where we work, what we do, where our money comes from, who our partners are, anything you want to know. And we really just want to put out there, uh, we're 100% transparent in everything that we do. So if our about page at chinaafricaproject.com slash about does not answer your questions, you can email me directly at uh, eric at chinaafricaproject.com. The only thing I ask is that you come with a civil 
approach and polite. That's these are good discussions to have. We're open and transparent, but when you come aggressively at us, it's not as much fun. Uh, but we will still take the high road and be polite nonetheless. But I did want to kind of put that out there that if you are interested in learning anything about us, feel free to ask. Go to our about page and you can check it out. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.